So going over where we've been, week one we talked about the priority of the gospel to shape us, our views and our attitudes. And please, again, I'll, I'll mention this. Uh, we're a small enough group if there's any questions, please just this is a conversation as much as it is, doesn't seem like a conversation since we're in the large auditorium. Week two, talking about the Christian real view, reviewing the, viewing the world in light of God's self-revelation. That was week two. That is the foundation from which we understand reality. That's the foundation from which we understand who we are in relationship to God, our place in this world. And that understanding is the basis for understanding cultural issues, the basis for understanding political issues. That brings us to week three, which we talked about competing worldviews, views that are at war with reality. What did I mean by that? I meant that they have, they, they have suppositions, presuppositions, beliefs that do not line up with our lived reality. And therefore, they are inconsistent, and they will only produce wreckage. Last week with the State and Church, we talked about upstream theology, things that, that have an impact upon us, impact upon our views about politics from our theology that we may or may be, uh, maybe not be aware of. This week, we're going to get into talking about a, a brief theology of the civil government. And my assertion here is that yes, the Bible does speak to what a civil government should and should not be, that it is legitimate, and there's also uh, rich grounds to understand that we do not see any truly righteous civil governments in history because men are fallen, we live in a fallen world. So with that, where I, I cut off last week was a discussion about the views of church and state in history. Um, before we get to that, I want to talk about, again, what's the overall goal of this, of this series, is that we would first and foremost honor and rejoice, that we would rejoice in God as our creator, sustainer, judge, and redeemer, and, as the, and in the good news of his kingdom. That holds precedent, that holds priority for us prior to our understanding of politics. If we do not hold that, we will not have a right relationship with ourselves, with God, with others, or with others in a societal fashion with politics. Secondly, that we would prioritize the gospel in talking with others. It was... I, I will admit that um, last week I had a conversation. I hadn't even left the, the stage yet. And we were talking about a view. Someone came up, we are talking about a view. And I made some comments, and I drove away realizing, well, I, was, I made some, some pretty arrogant statements there. Even as I speak about the priority of the gospel, the priority of the gospel reveals it, the need for the priority of the gospel reveals, reveals itself fresh. Fresh because routinely we overlook that and we idolize our own intellect, our own positions. So 
It is with a sense of humility that I look back to those arrogant statements and it is with a sense of rejoicing that I can look beyond those arrogant statements into the Redeemer who redeems and is my father and loves me as a child. Otherwise, all of us, we would be buried by, if we only look at our, our own weaknesses, we'd be buried by them. So praise God for that. So that's why I had to stop and talk a little bit of prioritizing the gospel and talking with others. There's a, um, that was a, a personal um, Sunday school that took place in about two minutes up here after the session last week. So let's talk a little bit about church and state in history. Doesn't, uh, all of us are aware about how different states have approached this topic throughout history. You have the, 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 the position that the, the state is to exclude religion. That's an easy one. Does anybody have any ideas who that might be as, as an example? Be brave. China. Officially, their statement is that they are a secular state and therefore religion is actually oppressed. It's suppressed. Um, medieval European Roman Catholicism, when they held, when this, the kings were at the, the, under the power of the Pope, what happened? If you were not Roman Catholic, you were oppressed. And an argument can be made about modern, a modern American postmodern pluralism. What I mean by that? That American, there's a, a view that we're pluralistic, there's lots of views, therefore no one view is a truth and don't you dare talk about any truth being exclusive. So one can make an argument that America's cultural Majority, you might say, perhaps, would say that uh, we, should we should exclude religion from this whole conversation. How about to compel religion? Oh, I'm sorry, I mixed up some of my examples there. So there, there's China, there was China that, that, uh, that excludes religion. Uh, to compel religion, uh, we could look back at, at the medieval times with Roman Catholic Church. We could look at modern Islamic theocracies where conversion from Islam means a death sentence. And I, I mentioned America, pluralism, that could be, you could, it could, an argument could be made that uh, the view is to exclude religion. But you could also argue that America, the cultural element that we're in right now, is saying that we need to compel religion not your religion, but we need to compel a secular religion and that everybody bows the knee to the secular religion, which means that you can identify however you, want, you, you like, and if you don't, you're in trouble, you're going to get fired, you're, you're going to lose your place within the university. So you could make an, uh, you, there, there could be a, a discussion around whether America is trying to exclude religion or compel religion. Well, in, honest, in, in all honesty, it's trying to compel religion. Again, any thoughts or comments along the way? Dan. Correct. Absolutely. What do you mean by that? 
Absolutely. Everybody has a worldview by which they, and that worldview could be said to, a, it's a religious belief system. Dan. I did not know that. Nor, did everybody hear that? North Korea, when it, when it first started, um, copied missionary activities, and they had people singing hymns to the state. They venerated the state. That's, they're making obvious what a lot of people uh, are trying to make less obvious now. But that was, I didn't know that. Thank you, Dan. So let's talk about the state. Now, when I say the state, I'm really saying the same thing as the government or the civil government. When a group of people contract, come together and contract and say, all right, we need to have certain laws, we need to have certain expectations about what you can and cannot do. If you have a group of three families and you say, you can't steal my dog, congratulations, you formed a very, very um, seminal type of government. Is it legitimate? Is it good or evil? Governments are God's servants. We see this in Romans 13.1. However, Governments can also be imposters because they rage and take their stance against God and his Messiah, Psalm 2. So what makes a good government good? A good government provides basic protect, protective justice for all its citizens, including God's people, whether it recognizes them as God's people or not. This means that Christians should take care, should, should care about good government both for their neighbors sake, their own sake, and their church's sake. So again, this whole conversation about government, what does it mean to love my neighbor? What does it mean to love the people in my church? If there's a vote saying that we need to not meet anymore, because I love you all, I will not, we should all have something to say about that. Government is even more difficult because we must deal with the church-world relationship, and Christians disagree about the nature of that relationship. So consider these, these options. These are the options. You will likely fall somewhere in these three options. The state should seek to enforce Christianity through the government. That's the farthest extreme. If we could paint a, 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 a continuum and the far end would be that, that the Christianity should be enforced through the government. A second view would be that saying that the state should enforce aspects of Christianity through the government, name, namely a number of its moral standards. So not everything. A third stance might be the state should not seek to enforce Christianity through the government at all, but should express their faith entirely in the private sphere. So I think this maybe encompasses where all of us fall, somewhere on the spectrum. I would assume that positions one and three stated here don't quite sit right with anybody. They, and it shouldn't, they don't sit quite right with me either. Yet people tend to lean toward one or the other. The people who lean toward one feel the weight of God's lordship and, and his judgment over all things. And we've seen that in, in the scripture, that he reigns over all. And this, that, that text 
weighs heavy upon the person who, who, who leans in this direction. For those who lean toward number three, they recognize that, that, that force cannot be used to produce faith in others. And they point to Jesus' instructions about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So you have these tensions, these tensions that are there in this question about the authority of the state. Still, most of us, including myself, don't feel like we can move all the way to one or three, but we're in the middle. Through the centuries, Christians in the middle lane have tried different ways to explain how we can open our Bibles and seek to impose the sword uh, the sword with a verse like you shall not murder on unbelievers. So yes, we, for those who are murderers, the state is there. Yes, we should use the sword. But what about in the example where uh, everybody will bow the knee and declare that Christ is Lord? Is that an activity of the state? That people should independently uh, declare Christ is Lord? Where, you, where do you place your, yourself in the spectrum between one and three? And what, more importantly, why? Sure. And there's, and there's the tension. And there's the tension uh, because at, for, on the first week we talked about there are some judgments we can make from Scripture that are straight line. Do not murder. That's very straight. What kind of, what kind of tax structure should we have as, as, a, as a nation or as a state? Is that a straight line issue? No. It requires, that requires wisdom to, to, under, to understand how to apply principles, which means we need to have a sense of humility when addressing these issues. That, you know, I have some strong views, you know, immigration, tax brackets, name all the political issues, we each have our views, but there needs to be a sense of, of humility, which means ability to talk about these things 
um, as believers. So I will argue for the position two as related to governmental authority. That means contrary to position one, I believe you should affirm the separation of church and state or at least a version of it, yet contrary to position three, I don't believe we should affirm the separation of religion and politics. There's two different things there, church and state, religion and politics. That prospect, and we kind of addressed that, I think, last week, is impossible. So let's talk just briefly about that. The separation of church and state, as mentioned last week, is absolutely necessary. Why do I say that? The church and the state have separate missions, they have separate jurisdictions. Who is to be baptized? That's not a state question. How do I educate my children? My children. Is that a church question? Is that a state question? It's a family question. There are jurisdictions set up for, for, for different authorities. So with this, the church is given the keys of the what? of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, that kingdom of God which will reign eternally. Uh, the state has the sword to enable the church to pursue its mandate. Those are two very separate mandates. However, the separation of state and religion is absolutely impossible. Every person, every thought, every action assumes a religious belief to the exclusion of conflicting religious beliefs. So the sentiment where we had a senator grilling a judicial nominee saying, you know, your dogma runs really deep within you. We can see that. That senator was not being honest or was ignorant of the fact that she had her own dogma and her own religious belief by which she was proceeding forward. So we could say, and we have to say, that religious neutrality is actually a myth. Everybody comes forward to a personal sphere, a family sphere, cultural sphere, political sphere. Everybody comes to it with their own God or gods. So what is this about the state's authority? Let's talk about the state's authority. A quote here from Jonathan Lehman, and I will admit at the outset, um, I leaned heavily on, J on Jonathan Lehman's um, couple books. This one's an outstanding book I would commend to you. And this is a great analogy I found, uh, talking about the nature of the state and how it's different from the nature uh, that its mandate is different. Let me read this to you. You might say that the Bible approaches governments like parents do a babysitter. Quote, you're not responsible to teach our kids to love and obey us, they instruct the sitter. You just need to keep them fed and safe and prevent them from fighting. The babysitter is entirely under the parents, but the sitter's jurisdiction is limited. The babysitter knows the parent's return is imminent and will seek to fulfill the parent's will. Still, the babysitter has been given a modest job. Your job isn't to teach our kids to love or worship God. Just help them play together well and go to bed on time. Likewise, good government will fear and acknowledge God. It knows a day is coming when the king of the earth 
and the great ones and the generals and the rich and all the powerful and everyone slave and free will experience God's judgment for how they did their jobs, Revelation 6. Still, God has given government a comparatively, a comparatively modest job. I found that to be a helpful understanding. State authority is derived from God and it's been given a job. And that job is limited in its scope and capability. The Islamic State would say, we use the sword for conversions. They don't understand the whole concept of conversions. Their worldview uh, is based upon error. So let's talk about what that authority is. At first glance, governmental authority is a necessary entitlement of dominion, uh, entailment of the dominion mandate that God gave Adam and Eve. What was that dominion mandate? Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. It's a, it is a condition of expanding our presence on the planet with other people so that we might live together in an orderly, predictable, and cooperative fashion. Yet government authority after the fall must also deal with the sinful agents and scarcity of resources. Those are two huge issues. You have sinful agents, and this is a major thing when talking about governments. Are the, is the government run by angels? No. Are there infinite resources? No. That means governmental authority must recognize that God does indeed command all human beings to fill the earth and subdue it, but, but also that these human beings are now murdering each other, are stealing each other's provisions, are lying uh, to their husbands and their fathers, this, from Genesis 27, raping each other's daughters, this is going back to Genesis 34, and slaughtering entire cities in retaliation. So a daughter was raped, going back to Genesis 34, and what they do? They went out and killed a whole city. Okay. For this reason, God introduces the authority to use coercive force. Nothing in the original dominion mandate says that one human being has the right to arbitrarily use force over another human being. So in the garden, there was only a discussion about the dominion mandate. There's no discussion about coercive force over another. After all, every human being shares equally in creation as our God-assigned authority. Therefore, God must specially authorize the use of coercive force which brings us to what we might call the, the Great Commission text for governmental authority. That is Genesis 9. Oh, yes, it is Genesis. It is not Deuteronomy. Um, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Genesis 9. So Genesis 9 doesn't spell out everything a government will need to do, but it lays down a few basic principles. We could say constitutional principles. What do I mean by constitution? A set of agreement. This is basis. This is basic uh, agreement about how we move forward. So let's start with, with that phrase. <clears throat> whoever, sheds a man, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
So first, it gives government, governments the ability to use coercion. And don't, don't, when you look at state, the state is one thing. It's a gun pointed at you. People talk about benevolence, but benevolence is not the pointed gun. It's saying, if you don't do this, there'll be coercive repercussions. I can give charitably, freely, but when the, when the government takes funds and gives it to someone else, don't mistake that for charity. That is a coercive act. First, it authorizes the use of coercive force in order to, to prosecute the taking of life. By implication, it also authorizes the government to prevent the unjust taking of life. For example, I would say that it gives the government moral permission to say, here's a speed limit. Again, we're getting into areas, do not take a life unjustly, straight line. But there's also the implications. So this is where we get into that, that wisdom-based judgments, where we need to say, all right, there should be some sense of, of life preservation that the state really takes in. And that's where we get into some wisdom-based decision-making. Any questions or thoughts there? Dan. Absolutely. Let me ask that. What does that mean? What does it mean for the a state to be held accountable? What do you mean? So for, for example, in uh, Isaiah 10, Assyria enjoys to be judged by God because they executed their authority harshly. Yeah. They overstepped the bounds of God that set forth. Yes. Yes. And more importantly... Yes, there are temporal judgments, and as, our, as a non-Christian worldview becomes more pervasive, it has the natural effect of, of, of impacting the fruit of that nation. So as we drift from a Christian worldview and, and, and adopt other worldviews, again, not we as a church, we as a society, that in and of itself, is a, that fruit is a form of judgment. But even more so, every individual in government will give an account for what they've done. So, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And that judgment comes through, uh, judgment comes through the manifestation of its sin itself. Um, that's a, a judgment unto itself. So let's, let's move on. Due process. So first... There is coercion, but then, secondly, this verse establishes the principle of due process. There needs to be parity. The punishment must fit, must fit the crime, a life for life in this situation. Keep in mind, and again, as I mentioned, in the ancient world, this principle typically, uh, was typically served to limit an otherwise unrestrained demand for vengeance. And remember that whole issue of, you raped my sister, I'm killing your whole village. Okay. That was unrighteous. It was, it, it, it was, there was no sense of due process. There was no parity in this. So off this concept of, of due process, one, it needs to be like for like, but there also needs to be, you need to make sure there's not a devaluation. All right, you've committed these, these three assaults. You, you, you need to give them five bucks. There's no sense of parity there. 
So with this, a just balance and scales are the Lord's, and all the weights are in the bag are his work, and it's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness, Proverbs 16. That's actually Proverbs this time, it's not in Deuteronomy. Practically, for instance, a government must not bribe or overtax its citizens for selfish gain. Any tax requires, because of this, we could say that there's an argument to be made that any taxes should require a clear and just gauge that accords with government's basic life-protecting purposes. Now, I know, well, in the next 15 minutes, we'll try to scoot through this and you'll realize, all right, we're talking about a government that's ideal. Has there been an ideal government? No. Maybe in the Garden of Eden, absolutely. Since the fall, there has not been one. What is our true kingdom? Where is our hope reside? So in addition to this, all in God's image, third Genesis 9 affirms the value of every human life made in the image of God, people of every, this is how we address the hideousness of racism. This is how we address the hideousness of inequality um, according to how a person looks. Jim Crow laws that read separate but equal we're evil. Not only are we, are we all in God's image, but this applies to all. This applies not only to the person on the street, me, who has no civil uh, authority whatsoever, but also applies to presidents, to judges, to sheriffs, that they are under this same responsibility. They are not exempted from it. Next, we could talk about crimes against God, man but not necessarily God. So this is for a taking of a life, and this person sacrifices his life. His blood should be shed by justice. However, we cannot go on to say that the man who, um, who blasphemes should be put to death because that's against God. No. We, we, in, there was, there was a, a government that was set up a very basic government through, through this passage in, in, um, in Genesis. What happens when we get to the state of Israel? The state of Israel, as we talked about last week, was a shadow pointing to a, to a, uh, to a greater good, which was the kingdom of God. That is not, Israel is not our prototype for what a state should be. It was a shadow pointing to something. It was not the prototype for what a government should be. Therefore, I can say that when, when uh, the apostle um, Paul, when he sought to kill Christians before he was converted, he sought capital punishment for what? Blasphemers. That's what the state of Israel did. And with Hymenaeus, what did he do? This Hymen, he, he, had, he had others that, that went after his conversion, there were people who were falling into grievous air. Did he say, stone them? No, he said, turn them over to Satan for, that they would be saved. There is a difference in kingdom activity there. State authority and justice. Let's talk a little bit about that. Clearly, government authority is a coercive authority, and its authority is one of command. 
So by justice, a king builds up the land, Proverbs 29, 4. David's throne, therefore, existed for the sake of upholding justice. Biblical justice is making judgments in accordance with God's standards of righteousness. Justice depends on a judgment, but that judgment needs a standard, a rule, or a scale by which to measure that judgment. Can we say that there is a standard of measurement aside from the creator, sustainer, judge of the entire universe? No. That's a real, to say that there's a secular st statement, a, a secular standard outside of that, is to have a contrary religious per, uh, position. Any questions? Yes. Absolutely. If there's not a standard, then that standard will be whatever is right in every man's eyes. Let's talk about the, the, the source of rights. We possess these rights not because they're inherent as in a part of us from God. My right not to be murdered is not inherent in me but it's an inherent in the lawgiver. This comes from, this is passed down through, by God. So people who are in the far group three will say, uh, but whose definition of right shall we legislate? Which God or gods? Well, again, everybody comes to this question with a sense of, of probably unknown fidelity to their system and their gods. Now, what, could, what, what are some of the more modern gods of, political, of the political environment right now? The, the god of, of authority? I'm, I'm going to promise these things because I just want more authority. I want more power, more, power, more prestige. Those are the gods. Or, or I, I want uh, identity. That is my god. What various gods are there in, in the environment that puts itself up against the God of the universe, and the source of rights. That should be, that should be raising some questions. How do, we, how do we govern, how do we, if I'm elected into office, how do I govern with someone whose, his whole basis of rights is completely at odds with mine? Why state authority? We've already considered the first two reasons the, the Bible provides. One is to protect life and to secure the conditions for the dominion mandate and for human flourishing. That's, that was the dominion mandate. A government these do, th does these two things by administering justice. But I'm, I'm, I'm not so much answering some question as, as opposed to hoping, putting um, a pebble in your shoe. What is justice? Where does it come from? Keep asking the question. All right, you say it comes from the state. Where does it come from there? Just keep asking the question, why? God's ultimate purpose for government is not merely to keep people alive, but to keep them alive so that they might know God. Genesis 9 comes before Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham for a reason. Government provides a platform on which God's redemptive drama can play out. Common grace 
sets the stage for special grace, like teaching people to read before they can, so they can read the Bible. So he made from one man every, every nation of, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us, Acts 17. God laid, Acts 17, look that up. He laid down the boundaries of states. Why did he lay down the, boundary, the boundaries of states? So that they would seek God. So the government's job is to clear the path, smooth, smooth the road, set the stage, and build a, a podium to clear the path and smooth the road for salvation's sake. What does that mean? It, uh, an argument could be made that the roads should be made so that we can come to church, that there should be freedom of speech so that we can come to church, so that we can have freedom of association so that people can worship. Now, do, do these laws prohibit a false religion? No, no. That's the issue, the weaponry, again, the weaponry by which we address false religion, is it the sword of the spirit? Is it shields? It's the armor of God. So let's briefly talk about the, the limits set on the authority of the state. First and most crucial limit, no government should regard itself as God. North Korea would be a keen example of a, of a government that, re, that regards itself as God. When the individual officers comprising the government don't acknowledge God, they either worship another God or regard themselves as God. Members of group these, so far as they are tempted to believe God, believe governments can remain neutral between gods, may need to be reminded of this point. Every prince, every member of parliament, every voter, every, every judge should acknowledge God and recognize that he or she is under God. Now, from Psalm 2. Now therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Who is this to? Now therefore... Private believers, no, this is to every person. The state is not God, nor is any person in state God. Sin, uh, sin and the nature, uh, I'm sorry, sin and state limitation. This is a quote from James Madison. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls of government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to, be, to control the governed. The next place is to oblige it to control itself. James Madison, what was intended by, what, what's, what do I mean by sin in, this, in the, the limitation of the state and with this quote with, with James Madison? Those who are in control, those who have a state authority, are sinners. 
Are sinners driven by altruism and a desire for the best, best benefit of everybody that they um, have authority over? If they're driven by their sinful impulses, no. So therefore, the state has to be limited because one, there are murderers on the street. Two, there are murderers in the state. So now, again, we've, we've talked about straight line. The straight line about not murdering, that's very clear. Let's get into some areas about how the state must be limited. And these are some, some of the issues that you can look back at, at, at history of England, you can look back at the American history about some of the elements that brought limitation to state. <clears throat> the first would be a rule by law as opposed to rule by, by the dictates of one man or the dictates of a nice group. No, we set up a law to say, this is the standard regardless of who is in control. You could look to Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 17, Isaiah 8, uh, for examples of how everyone must submit himself to, to the government authorities. Let's see, sorry, let me go back to Romans 13 here. Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So these authorities exist by God. God has standards, and those standards are best to be put down so that the men can be held accountable to them. Secondly, we could talk about a separation of powers. It was said that, uh, let me read a verse For the Lord is our judge, you could say Supreme Court. The Lord is our lawgiver, you could say Congress. The Lord is our king, you could say president. He will save us. That's Isaiah 33 with a couple words thrown in there. It's said that James Madison saw this and was inspired by this verse to some degree for the separation of powers. Well, if you have one man as king and he dictates the laws and he's also the judge, then if you've vested all of your power into one person then you're at the mercy of this one person. If you divide government so that one can be a check upon the other, there's wisdom in that. Again, I'm, I'm running out of time. There's by checks and balances, by decentralization, by representative government, I'll merely mention those. By, by checks and balances, that comes by when you have a divided, divided government, separation of powers, the legislature cannot run off because the ju judiciary should keep them in check. <clears throat> With decentralization, how are you most cared for? By people in Washington, D.C. or people in your house? Who loves you most? There's a concept of, I may not say it right, subsidiarity. Um, I, I didn't get it right. But it was, the basic concept is that Governing happens, that happens locally happens best. So I had to, I need to really, next week I'll try to pare my notes down significantly. I, I, I skipped a lot of this. But in looking at the nature of the, the state, it is, it is legitimate it, and it needs to be limited and, it, and there is a standard of righteousness and that standard of righteousness 
should really be considered by everybody who's in an authority. Does that mean we have a role? Yes. If you want to run for sheriff, for legislature, for president, there's a place for that. Does that mean that you're going to wield the sword and, and you know, uh, put to death all uh, blasphemers? No. So our current political environment subverts all the above, and, and granted, the more and more um, they, they subvert the, the above and seeking more and more power for themselves, out of love for our neighbor, we should consider how to talk about these things. So, but with our current political environment, how much does this really matter? If we talk, and there could be a, a far better prepared series on what the limitations of government should be. That's all fine and well, but how does this prepare us right now, right here for, for simply wicked governments? So let me end with a quote. But what, might look, but what it might look like for the church's politics if we became convinced, really convinced, both that we will have trouble in this world and that Jesus will overcome this world as he promised. So how will that transform us? We will have trouble. I'm not a utopian. And there's no biblical warrant for utopianism. The only utopia is the kingdom of God in the eternal state. Prior to that, what is my hope? I will have trouble. That's a promise. God will overcome. That's a promise. We might present a strange and winsome confidence that is, that is not desperate to win the cultural wars but is also tenderly and courageously committed to the good of others. So I don't need to be frantic about the cultural wars, but I can be, there can be a sense of confidence and winsomeness as I engage what it means to love our neighbors. Any questions before we, we close? Our God, we thank you for the for the reality that though the nations rage, you sit undisturbed and you reign almighty as judge. And yet you deserve great honor and, and, and worship for that, but you've not left us there. You have redeemed us and adopted us. We are, in fact, as those who have placed our faith and have repented, you have made us into your sons and daughters, and we are grateful for that. God, we pray that, that, that a sense of confidence, knowing that you are in control and that you, that you will culminate things perfectly, would give us a sense of winsome confidence as we speak to others about what it means to love others in our society. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.